because of the way the universe is created, we each of us live in two worlds at the same time. We have to live in the outer life of our own bodies and the inner life of our own souls. Hello and welcome to Living the Inner Life. I'm your host, Chris Sheridan, and I want you to join with me on a journey into our inner lives and realize the tools of consciousness, our thoughts, feelings, beliefs, all these powers of the mind that we have to better shape our response to the outer world and to improve our total life. All right. So today I want to talk about myth. Now, myth in our common language is used to describe something that's not true, a falsehood. Oh, that's just a myth. There was even a show called Mythbusters, and they would try to figure out if something was true or not through scientific experiments and debunk a myth, as they say. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about mythic stories, these wisdom tales that have been told throughout time. And in every generation, they're even being told today in movies and all the shows that we get to watch, or even on YouTube, if you're watching content, as long as it's storytelling. Now, not all stories are wisdom tales, but that's what really I want to focus on are myths. Myths teach us how to live. They show us our place in society, and they help us psychologically to deal not only with ourselves, but everyone else and the world around us that we come in contact with. Now, the best definition I've heard is, a myth is a story that never was, but always is. Hmm. So, from that, I take it to mean that even if the story itself didn't actually happen, actually and factually, like a biographical or history uh, telling of something that may or may not have happened, but there's truth to it. It tells a truth maybe even more of a truth than you would if you told a real story or an actual story. Okay, so these are universal truths. Myths deal on the level of archetype, and archetype are these universal patterns that we all have. They are parts of who we are. And in ancient Greece and in Rome and a lot of other cultures, these archetypal parts of ourselves were known as the gods. So you would have a god of wisdom, Sophia. You would have a god of truth, a god of beauty, a um, god of the, the vine like Dionysus. Uh, there's the god of justice. Okay, all these gods and all the nature god, the god of the sky, the god of the sea, all these things that were involved in people's lives, mostly psychologically, these are psychological archetypes. But in ancient myths, these characters, these gods, played out dramas, and they were very human. You know, in the West and in modern culture, we think, well, God is being something perfect. Uh, but these gods and goddesses of the ancients uh, had just as many problems as humans did. The difference is the consequences of their actions were much larger than that in our life. It would affect everybody on earth if the gods got angry. Okay? But they're telling us something. All these gods and goddesses are within each one of us. And by having these myths, these tales of the gods arguing with each other, or jealous, or punishment, 
all these things that happen in our everyday lives were told in these myths because it was a way of us learning what the consequences are. Some of the stories are cautionary tales, kind of what not to do, or what happens if you go against laws of nature or go against your brother, depending on what the tale is. But they were all relevant in some way. But they were told with these gods and goddesses and these epic tales because that put it on the level that we could all connect with, right? It's this archetype, which is the basic pattern for something. So, say, justice, if that's an archetypal pattern, or in the case of the ancients, it would be a particular god that would be assigned justice, and you've seen her, she's blind, a goddess, and holds the scales. We use that in our courtrooms, and even the Supreme Court, it's a very strong symbol that tells us a lot about what justice is. Do you weigh things equally? Um, and do you do that blindly, just according to the law, not, well, I have an eye towards this or I have an eye toward that, okay? That it's the same for everybody, okay? So if you have these tales and you have these characters, these gods and goddesses, and they're played out in the Greek dramas, and in the stories, a lot of it was oral tradition before things were written down. And we could learn from them, okay? You could learn your place in society. You could learn your place within a family or a community. And you would learn something about yourself. And also you can connect with different ones. You know, a certain god might have some quality that you gravitate towards, and then that would be something to aspire to. You know, I think even in India, there's probably a god or a goddess for just about anything or everyone. There might be millions of them, okay? But they're all very important, and they can be very personalized. You can connect with these gods and goddesses in these myths in a way that helps you connect with a deeper part of yourself. So this went on for centuries, uh, these myths showed up in religious texts and in wisdom tales, in Shakespearean dramas, over and over again, or using these bold, large, larger-than-life figures to show us something about our lives, okay? So, to use an everyday one, I'll take the boy who cried wolf. You probably remember this, Okay. This is a boy who would go with his parents who worked in the field and didn't have daycare, babysitters, things like that. Uh, so he would sit off to the side, kind of near the edge of the forest, and he was told that if a wolf comes, scream wolf, yell wolf, cry wolf, as they say. All right. Well, days went on. He got kind of bored. So he yelled wolf, and everyone dropped what they were doing and came to him and looked around and all this attention. And this went on, and this went on, and every time it was a false alarm. And at some point, when there actually was a wolf, and he cried wolf, nobody came because they didn't believe him anymore. Okay? Now, is this story true? Did that actually and factually happen? I don't know. Maybe something like that could have happened. But is it something that happens all the time? 
raising a false alarm, perhaps doing it so often and so much that after a while, people start stop believing you, okay, and don't take you seriously. Okay, you can do that with your health. You can have every little symptom and go to a doctor and go to the doctor and at some point, you call the doctor and say, well, I have this symptom. The doctor says, ah, don't even come in. Just, you know, get some sleep. And it ends up being something real. So raising a false alarm to get attention is something that can happen at any age, at any stage of our lives. Okay? But we use that in our common language. We know what cry wolf means. Now, is this really a problem or are you just crying wolf? Or, oh, here he goes again raising the fuss about this. It's probably nothing like it always is. He's just crying wolf. So we use that, a little shorthand of that term, crying wolf, as raising false alarms. And it connects with the story, okay, in such a way that all we have to, and we're all familiar with this story. So you can say, he's just crying wolf, and we all know what you mean. So it's one very particular, specific story that has a universal application, okay? So that's another quality of these myths and these wisdom tales, okay? They work for everybody, or they could, if you're ever in that situation or encounter this type of a person, all right? So yes, this is an example of a story that never was, but always is. There's always crying wolf. Is it actually a wolf? I've never heard anybody actually cry wolf. But have I heard people raise false alarms? Many times. I've probably done it myself. Okay, so this is a wisdom tale. It sounds like a childhood fairy tale, but and maybe it is, but it's so much more than that. Most of the fairy tales are like that. Okay, They used to be a lot darker when the Grimm brothers and other people wrote them. But again, they're either cautionary tales, you know, the consequences of your actions if you go against nature, or they somehow inspire you to become more than what you are, okay? So today, and for the last, I don't know, 130 years or so, we've had movies. That's been the predominant storytelling format uh, for this modern age, okay? There's pictures, and there's dialogue now after the 20s and when uh, talkies and the sound came in to the pictures. There's music. There's all these senses are activated. And we're also in a dark room with the flickering light, whether it's from your TV or you're actually in a movie theater, which goes back to storytelling by the campfire when it's dark outside and you're focused in on the storyteller, mesmerized by the light. Okay, and we have that in a movie theater, the persistence of vision, the flashing, flickering shutter of the projector, if they even still have that. I guess they're digital projectors now. But still, it's this light coming in, and it's pulling you in. And what's really great about movies, as wisdom tales, as modern myths, are, well, first of all, all the modern, the modern movies recycle ancient wisdom, ancient myths, mythology, scriptural stories. A lot of times they're repurposed and they're put in a modern context, and you might not see 
the original, unless you were very familiar with it. Like a modern movie, Pretty Woman, was based on Pygmalion, which was based on a much older story from Ovid's Metamorphosis, okay, about bringing a stone statuette um, to life. And then you have Pinocchio, a lot of stories, a lot of movies um, have used some of these motifs, some of these themes, because they persist. They're part of human nature, they're part of the human condition, and they speak to us. That's why we can all relate to them if they're working on this universal or archetypal level, okay? So having movies being the predominant storytelling method, uh, I think is really great. We have access to so many of them. It's really engaging. It fits more of our modern sensibilities. And since they can be modernized, uh, they fit our worldview, our everyday. You can have a movie that's about things that are currently happening. Just like The Boy Who Cried Wolf, that story came about during a time when people did live closer to nature, when something like a wolf was more of a danger. Okay, and they didn't have childcare and schools and things like that, I guess, at least not uh, for the poor uh, farming and, and working class people. All right. So having the movie tell us these stories again and again and again, it's a way of learning how we can function in the world. All right. So we know stories that are familiar, like Cinder, all the Disney movies have some fairy tale or earlier epic or something from scripture or mythology going all the way back. Okay, so even the style of telling the story, it could be digital animation and very futuristic and science fiction, but you're still telling and retelling what is a universal story. Because the story itself, in a lot of ways, is the same story. There might be 10,000, 100,000, millions of stories that all follow the basic format. And for the most part, that's Joseph Campbell's The Hero's Journey. I'm sure you've probably heard of that. Uh, there's a lot of talk with um, Campbell and Bill Moyers in the late 80s. They talked about Star Wars and how it fit. It was like a modern fairy tale. It had a lot of mythological, you know, there's a sword with a lightsaber. There's rescuing the princess. There's this evil empire. These are long, long held and throughout the centuries have been familiar tales. But to tell them again, we need to tell them in a way that fits who we are. So to have a science fiction adventure movie, which in some ways was like a cowboy movie because you had this sort of cowboy character in Han Solo. It was a coming of age story for Luke Skywalker. Okay. And it was at a time when uh, this would have been the space age in the late 70s when the movie came out. Uh, the space race was kind of late 50s, early 60s, culminating in the Apollo program, which ended in the early 70s. So it's on the heels of space exploration and humans in space 
that actually had happened in our world. So to go further, and you can tell that Lucas borrowed from mythology from the very opening, a long, long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. And what is that? But once upon a time in a faraway land. It's the same opening. But put the little twist in with the galaxy, because our sensibilities in the modern age may gravitate more towards something that's a little more relevant, a little more modern than if it's just a fairy tale from medieval times or some other era uh, from which these stories came. All right. So in this telling of the hero's journey, and I'm going to do a separate one just on the hero's journey because it's so big, but basically you have three parts, the departure, the initiation, and the return. So departure is leaving your home world. In the case of Star Wars, it was Tatooine, Luke Skywalker's home planet. And that took about 25 or 30 minutes to get to the point where he takes on this new adventure. There's a call to adventure. And that begins the initiation. There's a threshold guardian. There's mentors. There's opponents. There's tricksters. There's all kinds of things. There are ordeals to encounter, including an appointment with death. All these things that are necessary for the character to leave their home world which is why that gets established very early on. Usually for the first 20 to 30 minutes in a two-hour movie are in the home world. Okay, Even if they stay in the same town for the duration of the movie, they are shown at the beginning doing what they've normally done, their life up until now. Then this call to adventure comes, and you're drawn into or pulled into whether it's consciously or circumstances get you there, into this new, mysterious, strange world where you're a beginner and you have to learn the ropes and you have to let go of who you were to become who you're going to be. And then at some point, there's this appointment with death and that's really the final straw of your old self. Okay, that's really... The inner story is what dies inside is that attachment to the old way because you can't, you've, you've come too far. It's like puberty. Once you've made this transition, you can't at least physiologically go back. And of course, in society, you're expected to then become an adult uh, as you go on past this adolescent stage. But that's part of the hero's journey. So at the ending part, say like the last 20 to 30 minutes, that's the return. You go back to the home world, whether you actually go back to the original town you were in, or you somehow get back into that situation. Okay. And it's different because you're different. You've changed. The hero, the main character has gone through all this. So when they come back for the final battle or final conflict, they know what to do now, okay? They're able to function in the world as the person that they have become. And this person is the one that will succeed because the person that they were wasn't up to the task. That's what this initiation, this whole central part of moving through. And what happens is the character changes, the hero has to change, has to be transformed. Now, they don't just stop who they are and 
become somebody else. They have to have the seed of what it is. They, it just hasn't been developed yet. Okay. They have to have this somehow displayed or somehow connected with some larger part of themselves, but they don't know how to use it yet. Or maybe they don't even recognize it. Uh, it could be a heritage. It could be something from their own past that they're not aware, but they have somehow this seed of transformation of who they're going to become. And this is all of us. All right. That's why movies connect with us so much, especially the ones that mythologically, you know, follow the hero's journey and have some sort of transformative aspect to it. Okay. At the end of the movie, the main character should be a different person. Now, there might be some character who doesn't change, which is important because that's how you can reference how much the hero has changed. Okay is by having something or someone else stay the same, then wow, okay. Or be put in a similar situation, and then they know how to act. They know how to respond in a way that they wouldn't have been able to before. And another large part of this return is you bring back. You know, it's not just that you change. That's huge. But because you've made this change, and you and the hero are the same, because that's who we gravitate towards, and it's really the inner journey, uh, that's who you have to become, all right? And all these epic journeys, whether it's Star Wars and they're going all over the galaxy, or if it's Homer's Odyssey, where Odysseus is fighting the war in Troy, and he's having this long, long journey back. He loses his crew. He loses his ship. He loses just about everything, almost his own life several times. And he needed to strip away those things because it's an inner transformation. The outer journey is necessary to make the internal change. So it's always and only really an inner journey, no matter how outward it's described in the myth or the wisdom tale or in the movie, because there's an outer need or an outer goal that has to be accomplished in such a way that it satisfies this inner need, this incompleteness, this maturation that has to happen. You have to become something stronger. You have to become this provider or the savior, in a sense, if you come back to your village and now you have the power, the ability to help them in maintaining the, the culture. So coming back, you are not you anymore, okay? You've gone through this, and you can actually feel like that. If you go see a really intense movie or something, you can walk out of the theater going, wow, okay, and you feel a little bit of that because that's connecting with an inner part of you. The character on the screen may have nothing to do with you. You may not even like what it is they do, like for a living or something, but you connect with them on a human level. And that's the universal level. And that's the function and the gift, really, of myths and our modern myth-telling movies. As long as they have to be kind of a good movie. And this is why a lot of these miniseries or sort of ongoing you know, limited series, I think they're called sometimes on the streaming networks, they don't really work too well as transformative tales 
because there's not really an end. There's next season, there's a sequel, there's all this stuff, okay? Within itself, this you try to pick a movie or a myth that has an ending. It's not just episodic, okay? Uh, you want the transformation because that's what you're going to make. And we go through this in our lives. Many times we make the hero's journey, sometimes simultaneously. We might be embarking on the beginning of a new relationship and, you know, moving to a new place. And at the same time, maybe we're 20 years into an old career or something that we're, you know, moving out of. So this journey happens a lot. It happens inside and outside. But the main thing to remember is that no matter how epic these stories are, no matter how far out in the world this adventure goes, the real story, the real tale, is about the inner transformation that the hero makes. And since it's an inner story, an inner transformation, you are the hero, and you are the one who takes the journey, and it is you who will be transformed into this larger, greater part of yourself, a larger, greater you. And that's what we're doing here on Living the Inner Life. And thank you for joining me again, and we'll see you next time.